Thank you, Faye. My name is Gracie Aronofsky. Hi, everybody. Hi. Truly, by the grace of God, I'm a member of the Alnon Family Program, and I'm delighted to be here. It's been a number of years ago that I was here, and to be asked to come back is just a double, double thrill. And there are a number of longtime friends in this room, and it's just like old home week. Thank you for being here. You're wonderful sufferers to sit through this again. I want to thank Faye for being such a marvelous hostess. She called a number of times to make sure that all was in order before I ever got her. She met my plane in Savannah yesterday, and she's just been right with me all the way through. And, and that means so much when you're off somewhere and you don't think you know anybody. And golly, I'm just amazed that I know as many people here today as I do. It, it's such fun. Beautiful fruit basket in my room with more stuff that I could eat if I was here for a week. And these gals that did them did a wonderful job. I think Faye did mine. I think she must have thought I was hungry. I won't be hungry, I promise. But it's just such a treat. And thank you, thank you for letting me be with you. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. I grew up in Denver. I grew up with wonderful parents, two brothers. There was no drinking in our home. My folks just didn't happen to like it. They kept it in the house for the friends who did. I knew nothing about alcoholism. When I uh, got into high school, uh, we had 3-2 beer. It was legal. We'd go on cookouts a lot in the mountains, and we always took a couple of cases of beer. I was getting ready for you all way back then because I couldn't stand the beer. But what I would do was take care of the kids that drank too much. And I'd take them home to mother and to dad so they could sober them up to keep them from getting in the doghouse. Tell me I'm not a caretaker. I fit into the Al-Anon program just like I was born to it. I graduated high school at age 16 and I went on to the University of Colorado. Not for an education. I went to have fun. I went to have a good time and I went to meet him. And he was going to be six foot four and he was going to be an all-American football player. My father had played football, and uh, we went to all the football games, I think, from the time I was four or five years old, and I loved everything about it. I'd been playing football myself if it had been legal, and that was what it was going to be like. And I started out having a grand time in school, just, just lots of fun and meeting lots of folks and, and dating a lot and just the excitement of it all. Didn't make any grades, and I made just enough to stay in school. That was it. And it was an embarrassment to my family because my brothers and dad all graduated from University of Colorado and uh, they couldn't understand what was wrong with Gracie. Well, there wasn't anything wrong with me except I just didn't apply myself. And I had to be tutored a couple of times to get through some classes and uh, it really didn't mean a darn thing to me. Today, that is one of my regrets. I want you to know that. I don't have many, but one regret is that I didn't go on with my education. And that was my choice. Uh, we have a lot of choices that we don't realize until we get here. Uh, December of 1941, and there are not many of you in here old enough to remember it. There are a few. And uh, we were in World War II. Campus was absolutely hysterical. I probably more than anybody else, because all of a sudden the fellows were going to disappear. They were going on to active duty, they were enlisting, and we were going to be an all-girl campus, I was afraid. And here I am, I'm now 17, and I'm going to be an old maid. It's a lot to worry about. 
one of my classmates invited me to spend the Christmas holidays with her family in Dallas. And on the train going down, she told me I would be going out with her brother's best friend. Go out with him, have a good time, just don't believe anything he says. Well, you know where that went, right in here, right out here. Because I felt that I could hold my own with anyone, anywhere, anytime. Don't ask me where I got that idea. I thought I knew everything about everything, and I knew nothing about nothing. My peer group, we were so darn naive, but we would make up things, and we would pretend. And little did I realize what a pretender I was until I got here. I believe every one of us in this room, whether we be A or L and I, become the great pretenders. We can all win an Oscar given the opportunity. You know, people ask us how we're doing, wonderful, how's everything going, just grand, and on the inside we're dying because we don't ever want anybody to know what we're really like. We arrived in Dallas on the train and there was a young man standing there, five foot six, and he invited, he invited, he drove us to my friend's home, invited me to go out that night. And we went out for the next two weeks. Now I have to tell you that we didn't go anywhere. We talked about it after coming into the program. We drove to a drive-in very close to my friend's home and they served beer and ale in the car. And he introduced me to ale. And I want you to know to this day, it is the rottenest stuff I've ever put in my mouth. I was reading an ad on the American Magazine yesterday, a great big ad on ale and how wonderful it is. And I thought, those people don't know, they've never tasted it. I sat in that car and pretended to like it. It was horrible. <clears throat> and we would lie to each other. I'd go back to my friend's home, and we did this every night for two weeks. I went back to school and, and wrote to him, and I sort of had the heart palpitations. He was older than I was. He was the oldest boy I'd ever gone out with. He was three years older, big deal. But that was a lot for me back then. And... Uh, I thought, you know, he's pretty eligible. I wonder if I could latch on to him. Talk about manipulation. Because, you see, this young man was going to be allowed to finish his education. And I figured by the time he was through all his learning, war would certainly be over. So I better grab a hold. So I wrote to him and didn't get a response. Wrote again and no response. And after the third letter and no response, I did not meet him because campus had become military. And I'll tell you what, we had ten fellows at least to every gal. And you talk about fun, it was fantastic. I mean, I loved the uniforms, I loved everything about them. I fell in and out of love every time you turned around. Every time. He'd ship out and another one would take his place. And it was an exciting time. We all had a good time. An invitation to go back to Dallas arrived to be in a wedding. Couldn't wait to get there because he was going to be in the wedding. He met the train, we went through the wedding festivities, right back to that drive-in, drank that rotten ale, and lied to each other. And after two weeks, I went back to school and wrote to him and didn't hear from him. So I got on with the military. And everything was going along just fine. Everything was just grand. Till another invitation to go back to Dallas and for another wedding. And this time, he was also in the wedding again. Uh, we did all the things you do for a wedding party, and then we went back to the drive-in. And before I went back to school, I had a fraternity pin. And we had plans to be married some two and a half years later after he finished his schooling. And that was in January, and April, a ring arrived in the mail, and 
June the 10th, 1943, at 8 o'clock p.m., a formal wedding, surrounded by family and friends, and the realization I know today, of course, of what his folks and my folks hoped and prayed for, both of us, and us also. And everything was going to be beautiful. We had three days for a honeymoon. We drove up to the mountains and drove right back to Denver to go dancing and back up to the mountains and back to Denver to go dancing. That should have been some kind of a warning. There was no stability. But we were having fun. We were having fun. We went back to Dallas. Dave went back to school and I went to work. We had everything going for us that any young couple could ever hope for. We had very little money. We didn't need much money. But every time we had a few dollars ahead, we bought a bottle. And every time we did, he drank too much. And I was furious. You see, I was powerless over alcohol, and my life was unmanageable over 55 years ago, and I didn't know it. I couldn't understand it, and was not to understand it for such a long time. We, uh, one particular incident stands out of my behavior and the part of alcoholism, the family illness, and we are, are affected by it. We can fight it, we can argue it, we can deny it, but it's there. When you live with alcoholism, it's there. Uh, David had finished his, uh, he finished his education, he graduated from Baylor University College of Dentistry and was serving a residency in one of our local hospitals. I had a little apartment a couple of blocks away from the hospital because he had to live in. My apartment was a one-room walk-up, fraternity his weekend off. He had one weekend a month, and there was a big fraternity dance. We borrowed his mom's car because we didn't have one, and sallied forth to the party. And we were back home probably within the hour. I had to get behind him, going up that stairwell that went straight up like so, in order to keep him from falling. And when we got to the top of the landing, he passed out. And for one fleeting instant, you know what I wanted to do. And it would have been very simple because I was an athlete. I was a swimmer. I was a tennis player. I was a horseback rider. I showed horses. There wasn't anything. I was a big gal and he was a little guy. I didn't do it. I drug him in by his heels and left him passed out in the middle of the floor. And when he came to the next morning, he wanted to know what happened. And I looked at him with all the resentment that I could muster, and I said, yes. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. No sane, sound, thinking person thought the thoughts I did that night or for many nights to come. He didn't finish his residency. He was called to active duty with the United States Navy. He was declared an officer and a gentleman. I was able to go with him, and we had fantastic duty. We started out at Treasure Island out of San Francisco, and ended up aboard a, a small aircraft carrier in Coronado Naval Air Station. And we had a blast. We had more money than we'd ever had. We partied, we played, we drank, we fought, and we made up. And it was always so darn much fun making up that you forgot about the rotten, nasty, ugly things you said to each other the night before. And we did. We did. I drank with him. I drank ahead of him, I drank behind him, I drank alone, and I drank with other people. And I know standing here right this instant, it's only by the grace of God I'm not an alcoholic. I flunked the test. I never wanted a drink in my life. And it did not do with and for me what it does to the problem drinker. If I drank too much, it made me drunk. Of course it did. 
And then I was one of those obnoxious people that got sick. Oh, God. And how soon we forget. And I did forget for a long time how very kind this man that I was married to was to me. Because in all my sickness, many, 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 many times, he always took care of me. Always took care of me. But I forgot the good. I forgot the good. And I think many of us do, living with alcoholism. We can only remember the bad and the ugly. Let's stop and think. I know this, that I could never have lived with him the number of years that I did, if it had all been bad. David was not a violent person I was. And many, many times I wanted to use a great deal of violence. I often say that it has not been necessary for me to plan a murder or a suicide since April of 1967. <laughs> the program does work. I promise you it does if you're doubtful. If I would lie in bed night after night planning ways to get rid of it. And of course, I didn't. I didn't do it. Uh, we were in the service 19 months, went back to Dallas, opened an office, I went to work for him, and again we had everything going for us. We made more money than anybody should ever make. It was right after Korea, uh, right after World War II, and, and there was a shortage of dentists, and, and we just, we worked like crazy, and we spent like mad. The late Norm Alvey from California used to say, spent money he didn't have to buy things he didn't need to impress people he didn't even know. <laughs> and that's basically what we did. And uh, we were in Dallas five years, and during those five years, our two sons were born. I had always wanted six children. Lee has six, and I'm jealous of her. Today I thank God that we didn't. <laughs> we had built our first home, and Everything was going great, except we were doing the same things we had done in California that we did in school. We partied, we played, we drank, we fought, and we made up. Now I said David wasn't physical, but our verbal battles were horrendous. I learned language to this day I have no idea from whom or where. Not in my home and not from him. And I used all those rotten words on that man. I stripped him of every bit of dignity that he ever had. I'm not proud of that. That's just the way it was. It was just not a pretty, pretty sight. At the end of five years, we were bankrupt. Totally. Financially, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, certainly financially. And Uncle Sam came along to relieve the burden. David was recalled during the Korean conflict, and we were delighted. Now it was decided that I would stay behind in Dallas because he would only be gone a brief period. He was gone two weeks when he called and said, how soon could I join him? And once again, California duty. This time he was attached to the Marines at Camp Pendleton. And the house went on the market, the furniture went into storage, and the kiddos and I headed for California. We lived in Coronado, in, not, not in Coronado, in San Clemente, which was an absolutely delightful place. Back then there were only about 2,500 people there. And it was very picturesque and we're right on the water and it was a grand place for children and for this gal to become a mother because we'd had a live-in housekeeper with the children from the day they were born. And I had full charge of the kids and I had a good time. But at night, 
we'd hire a babysitter and we'd do what we'd always done. We partied, we played, we drank, we fought, and we made up. He was sent to Hawaii on temporary duty and the kiddos and I remained in San Clemente. And he told me not to worry about anything. He'd send his pay home and I didn't question it until it didn't arrive. And uh, after a certain period, I called him and he couldn't understand it because he'd mailed it yesterday. And I waited and it didn't arrive. And I called him back and, of course, the same response, it was mailed yesterday. I went to the base legal officer. Now, I did not go to get a divorce. I went to embarrass this man and I did. I humiliated him beyond words because he was forced to sign over an allotment. And I thought, that'll show him. And when he gets back, then I'm leaving, but not before. You see, I could have gone to Dallas to his family, Denver to my family, but I was waiting to confront him. My phone rang one morning about 3.30, and you know who. The ship was going to tie up in San Diego, and would the kiddos and I be there? And you know what I did. Up they got, dressed we got, and headed for San Diego. And when Dad got off the ship, he had on his dress whites, and he looked good. Now, I told you I loved uniforms. And every ugly, nasty thought I'd had while he was gone went right out into that Pacific. It didn't. You and I in here know where it went. It went down in that hole that every one of us have when we get here, where we file all of those goodies, all those resentments, those hostilities. Right down here, we file them because we don't know what to do with them. We don't know how to get rid of them until we arrive in this program and we hit steps four, five, six, and seven. We went back to our little town of San Clemente and did the same thing we'd always done, party, play, drink, fight, and make up. And then the division that he was attached to was shipped to the Far East, and it was at this point that the children and I moved to Denver to be close to my family. I had my own apartment, and everything was going to be wonderful, and he was just going to be gone a brief time, and it was three years, and it was three years of desertion. Now, I would love to tell you I sat home and grew wings and a halo and all those wonderful things that a lot of people do. I didn't. I went out to find him again, somebody to rescue me. Not proud of those days, it's just the way it was. And of course, I was married. I tried to get a divorce and couldn't because he was out of the country and couldn't be served. So I lived the life of a single gal. And where did I go? I had access to all of the officers' clubs, and let me tell you, I had a ball. It was just wonderful. We had, uh, back then, it was Eisenhower, a summer home was Denver. And the ship, the ship, the planes used to come into uh, Lowry Air Force Base. And of course that was my favorite hangout. I walk into the bar and there's a short bar here, a long bar here. I always managed to get a stool at the long, at the short end of the bar because it gave me a chance to look you fellows over. And every one of you knew what I was there for. Some of you gals do because you shared with me you've done the same thing. It wouldn't be long before there's somebody lighting a cigarette for me and there's a drink in front of me. And you look one another into the eyes and what have you got? You've got instant love. God. It didn't take long and he was going to send me to Mexico for an illegal divorce and I darn near took him up on it and I went to a family friend, our physician and his wife who were like second parents. They did for me what I think everyone who ever loves a drunk has had done for them. You know, they patted me on the shoulder and gave me all of the sympathy that I needed and wanted and said, honey, we don't blame you, we understand. 
they didn't understand any more than I did because they knew nothing about alcoholism. And uh, they did make a wonderful suggestion that I get a piece of paper and a pencil, put David on one side and this young man on the other, and write down everything I liked and disliked about each of them. And you know what I had. I had one in Denver and one in the Far East. Didn't know what they were, but they were exactly alike. I introduced him to one of my friends and ten one of my former classmates, and they were married ten days later, so that'll give you an idea. I went right back out to Lowry, and of course this time was a full colonel. Colonel, you go to general, and I thought, this is it, this is it. And he was a former All-American football player beside. I mean, you know, he had everything going for him. And uh, I thought, this is it. I'm finally finding my dream. And I didn't pay one bit of attention to what he told me either the first or second date I had with him. And that was that he had been shipped back from Korea due to a drinking problem. All he needed was stability in his life, and here I was, Miss Wonderful. A built-in family, the whole nine yards. That didn't last too long. It lasted long enough. And I introduced him to one of my friends, and she was wise enough not to marry him. Sadly, this young man did die as a direct result of alcoholism after Dave and I got back together. Because he didn't have what you and I in this room have. He didn't have a program. The military back then didn't know what to do with him, so they just kept shifting him. Shifting him. He was in the Naval Hospital up in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, if you've ever tried to get rid of a drunk, they're going to show up sooner or later. There's just something about them in my two days, two weeks, two months, two years, but they're going to show up. And my phone rang one day, and you know who, and uh, I hung up. I hung up the second time and the third time I listened, and all they wanted me to do was fly to California and see if we couldn't put this back together. And there wasn't any way I was going until the next day. <laughs> I flew into Oakland, California, and he was standing there in his dress blues, and he looked good. <laughs> we went into the bar, and we had a drink, and we visited. We went on into the city, and we had a few more drinks, and we visited, and... I went back to Denver a few days later, wait for Dad to be released from active duty and start all over. He picked us up in Denver. We went back to Dallas, opened an office. We didn't stay very long, just a matter of a few months, and decided we wanted to raise the children in a small town. We moved to a little community called Crowell, Texas, out toward the Panhandle, and we darn near starved to death. It was less than a thousand people, and there just were not enough people to support us. So after less than a year, we moved further into the Panhandle to a little town of Memphis, Texas. And I will be eternally grateful for the people in that community. We were there eight years, and they loved us in spite of us. Our sons turned out, I believe, the way they turned out because of the education and the, all of the good things that happened in that community. But you and I in this room knew what we were doing. We didn't. It's called a geographic. It was always going to be better across the street, around the block, the next town, the next community, the next something. Not knowing that alcoholism is a progressive disease, that it doesn't get better, that it only gets worse. It's insidious, it's baffling, it's a killer. And we didn't know this. We didn't know this. At the end of eight years, we were once more bankrupt in every area of our lives. And David said, I think we ought to move back to Dallas. And I said, how soon? 
and we were gone two weeks later. We lied to those beautiful people in that area and told them we were going because his folks needed us. They didn't. His dad had retired and he and Grandma were doing all the things on retirement they ever planned. They didn't need a drunk son, a confused daughter-in-law, and two mixed-up children. They got us. And today I thank the God of my understanding that allowed these two people to live long enough to know a solar son and see a family putting themselves back together with this phenomenal program of Alcoholics Anonymous and al We still had three more years of drinking. And during that drinking, I did it all during those three years. Uh, when I listened to this death, and you know, I'm no kid, and, and this old broad standing up here gets a lot of these young gals, and they'll say, can we take our inventory with you? And then if they sure, and they come in kind of scared and shy, and they're afraid they're going to embarrass me. And I just look at them and say, honey, anything you've done, I've done it in strengths. If I haven't done it, I've thought about doing it. That's just the way it was. That's just the way it was. Uh, during those three years, I planned the murder. I planned the suicide. I came up with a perfect crime, and I do not talk about it from the podium because somebody might be sicker than I was. <laughs> I want you to know I mentioned choice early on when I got started. Every one of us in this room have a choice. We can live with the situation or live without the situation. It's up to us. It's up to us. And I had that choice. I could have left any hour of any day. I had gone to work in Dallas. I had a very fine position. I was making more money than gals made back then. I was self-supporting through my own contributions. Our son's education was taken care of with a trust set up by my father. I didn't have that to worry about. I could have left. I made the choice to stay. And you know, I don't regret it because you know what would have happened to me. I'd have gone out and gotten another drunk for crying out loud. I knew what I had with that one. I don't know what I'd get with the next one. There's just no way. So if you're thinking about leaving, think real long and hard. As I say, I did it all during those three. I stole from him. I lied. I cheated. And I don't believe there's anyone that lives with alcoholism that doesn't learn to do that. I was not raised that way. I was not raised to lie. I was not raised to cheat. But I did. I stole from him every opportunity that I could. I never took it all. That's sick in itself. Because a drunk doesn't know what happens to their money. He didn't know what happened. But I always left him so much. Um, my phone rang in my office one day. And he said, I know you don't believe me, but I'm going to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and I said, be my guest, and I hung up. Because I had hit my bottom. I firmly believe, believe that you and I who love a drunk have to hit our bottoms just as the alcoholic hits theirs. I'd gone as far down that hole as I could go, and I had nowhere else to go but to start to climb up. I didn't do this on my own. I was on my way home from work uh, about six months prior to that call and something happened to me and I knew I had to see him. Now he was to stay away from home drunk and I never knew whether he'd be there or not. And no coincidences. Because he was sitting in the den when I walked in and I told him I wanted to talk to him. It wasn't the first time and he wasn't a bit excited about that. He said, what's it about now? And I was able to sit there and tell him that I no longer cared. 
I didn't care whether he lived, whether he died, whether he left, or whether he stayed. That he was free to go, whatever. That I would wait until both the boys were gone and then I would be gone. And I turned around and walked away and walked into my room that night and I went to bed and I slept. For the first time in God knows how long. I slept the night through. I wasn't up as many of us are living with alcoholism, looking out the window to see if they're driving up, and if they are, we're jumping back into bed and pretending to be asleep. I didn't do that anymore, and I've never done it. I've been sleeping every night ever since. I didn't know what happened. After I got to you, I found out that God was doing for me what I was incapable of doing for myself. I had let go of that alcoholic. I literally had let go. And that was in order for me to survive. I had to live or I would have died. When he called me and told me he was going to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I could have cared less. There wasn't a meeting that night. We didn't have meetings every day and every night like we do today. And so he was home when I got home and there was no communication. The next day he called me back in my office to say he was going to that meeting and he got the same response from me and I hang up call. That evening when I got home from work, he was dressed and he was ready to walk out the door. No communication. Our older son was in University of Texas at the time. Donnie was finishing high school and he said, Mom, do you think Dad really means it? And I said, Honey, we won't know until Dad comes home. And that was April 21, 1967. From that day forth until the day he died. What more can you ask? What more can you ask? Uh, he'd been sober one week and he invited me to go to an AA meeting with him. I think I probably beat him to the car. And we hadn't been talking, we hadn't been having any communication, not anything. But I couldn't wait to see what you people did and what you had. Because you had done something with him that the kids and I had not been able to do. You cleaned him up. He'd been taking a bath every night and changing his clothes from the inside out. <laughs> Our program is one of attraction, and I firmly believe, get him here any way you can. That Friday night was an open speaker meeting. I couldn't tell you one single thing that happened at that meeting. I read the slogans on the wall, and when I saw Let Go and Let God, I knew that was exactly what had happened for me that night, driving home six months prior. I don't know what they talked about, but I fell in love with Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've never fallen out of it. I fell in love with the people, with the laughter. And back then, I want you to know, we dressed to go to meetings. We dressed like we were going to a cocktail party. Guys wore their funeral suits, and we gals wore the finest clothes that we had. And everybody was laughing. The laughter was what was so exciting. And they all smelled good. Oh, they smelled so good. It was just wonderful. The following Monday, he said, how would you like to go to an Al-Anon meeting? And I said, what is that? He said, I have no idea, but I think it's for you. <laughs> and I don't ever want to forget my first Al-Anon meeting, and I share it every opportunity that I can. Because I walked into a room full of the most pious broads I've ever encountered. <laughs> and those women were so good that I literally wanted to throw up. They talked about how good they were to their drunks, that they made sure that they were fed because they didn't want them to starve. I wanted mine 
to starve to death. They talked about making sure they got to bed in clean linens and jammy because they didn't want them to sleep on the floor. I wanted mine dead in the gutter. You and I, when we call ourselves members of Alcoholics Anonymous or Al-Anon, have accepted a responsibility of honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. We share our experiences, our strength, our hopes, and we share our fears. Because if you were like I was, you were scared to death when you got here. We didn't know what we were getting into. We had no earthly idea. And if we don't tell those new guys and gals the truth, what are we doing? We're shorting them. We're shorting them. This is a life-saving business. And I've seen people die in Alana and in AA because they didn't have the help they needed. It's not any fun. It's not any fun. Let's not pretend to be something we're not. Let's not tell that new guy or gal when they walk in the door, everything is wonderful, it's going to be just great. We don't know that. We don't know whether that guy or gal is going to get sober. We love that mother, that father, that sister, that brother, that lover, that husband, that wife. We love them and tell them that there's no situation so difficult and no unhappiness so great that it cannot be overcome. And how do we do that? The 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous in the program area. Pretty darn simple, isn't it? Let's not promise something we can't deliver. I went to that group four years because I didn't know you could go somewhere else. <laughs> we don't hear till we hear and we don't see till we see and I'm like a turtle that lost the race. I had to go all the way to Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, Canada in 1971 to hear a drunk from Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina say, if you don't think your group is the best, get yourself another. Simplicity. Dave was talking to me that night, and I've never forgotten it. I mean, I was the only one in that whole room, because I knew what I needed to do. And when I got back to Dallas, I walked into a new group. It was, it was two years old at the time, but a new group for me. And I started all over. Of course, you see, after four years, I thought I was a pro. I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything. And I had to start over. And I got an Eleanor sponsor who taught me so much. She taught me about patience and she taught me about tolerance. Bonnie was one of the most genteel people I have ever known in my life. She never used a word of profanity, as far as I know, ever. Her husband never achieved continuous sobriety. He did die sober, thank you God. But she never lost her cool. She'd nurse him back to health every time he went out drinking. He'd come back in the program for a year or two and then he'd tie one on and she just kept right on with her program. I lost her several years ago from Alzheimer's and I lost a big part of myself. But I'll tell you, I'll never ever forget her. When I was at that other group, I had asked a member of Alcoholics Anonymous to be my sponsor because I couldn't identify with those women in that Alan group. Chris had never been to an A. Al-Anon meeting. She didn't know a darn thing about it. But we had become friends. And she said, honey, we'll give it a try. You see, I wanted to be an Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know I would be an Al-Anon. I didn't like anything about it. And she said to me, we'll see. 
and she bought me my first big book about Alcoholics Anonymous. She opened it up to the fourth chapter and said, read this. And it said, if you honestly want to and cannot quit entirely, or if when drinking you have little control over the amount that you take, you're probably alcoholic. She said, now, do you qualify? And I didn't, of course. I have already told you about my drinking. So I had to keep going to those sappy meetings. <laughs> so I had Chris guiding me, and then I had Bonnie, and then I had the beautiful members of the fellowship. And I'd been in that group a very short time when the chairman asked me to sponsor Alateen, and I didn't even know what it was, because the children weren't allowed in the group that I had come from. And I, of course, immediately said, oh, no way. And she looked at me and said, you don't say no in this program. It scared the devil out of me. I said, okay. And I had the great privilege of sponsoring Alateen for six years. And I will never, ever forget that. Those kiddos taught me about loving for free. No strings attached. They love and understand that, drunk. It's me. I'm stark raving sober. What's wrong with you? That's the kiddos for you. I learned so much, so very much from them, and I'll always be grateful. I had a wonderful experience at Christmas, just before Christmas. A young woman had asked me to sponsor her two years ago. She said, uh, you don't know me, but I know you. And I said, really? And she said, yep, you had my brother and sister in your Alateen group. And when she told me who they were, of course I did. They were wonderful kids. And, and uh, she said, uh, Christy and Mike are going to be here for Christmas. And I said, Grand, I'd love to see them. And came a knock on my door shortly before Christmas, and three kids are standing there singing the Christmas carols to me. Nearly blew me apart, because here were those kids that had been in my Alateen group back in the 70s. And Mike had 15 years of sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous. He lives in New Mexico, and he goes to Allen as well, because both of those, all three of those kiddos, and they have another brother who grew up in alcoholism, their mom and dad, both members of AA, and they were surrounded, they were buried in it. And as I say, Mike is sober, Christy and Cindy go to Al-Anon, Bob's still out there experimenting, but he'll be with us. He'll be with us. We never know, we never ever know when we are carrying that message, who's going to get it. Who's going to get it? That's the reason it's so important for us to stay involved. Just because you've got five years or ten years or twenty years and you don't think you've got time, who was here when you got here? Who was here when you got here and took the time, and took the time to walk with you and care enough to walk you through the program? I don't ever want to forget it. I don't ever want to forget it. I've been in the program now 33 years and 9 months, and it doesn't seem possible. It's been an experience that I don't want to ever trade for anything or anybody. Uh, when on July 20th, 98, I was getting ready to go carry a meeting, morning meeting, step meeting, and uh, I went in to wake Dad so he wouldn't be late to the office. and. He didn't wake up. He had died in his sleep. And I didn't scream, holler, get hysterical. I went to the phone to call 911. And on the way to the phone, I said, thank you, God. Because for those of you who knew David, 
he was probably the most vibrant, alive human being that ever came down the pike. He never put the brakes on from the day he came in. He was a past delegate, past trustee, uh, totally involved in Alcoholics Anonymous from day one. And he could not have stood to be ill. There's no way that he could have had a lingering illness. So God was good. God was good. Uh, it's not anything we planned. I certainly didn't, and he didn't either. We had just come back. He was in Arkansas for a convention, and I'd been in Louisiana, and we came in Sunday evening and shared our weekends, and everything was wonderful. If you think I like being a widow, you're wrong. I don't like anything about it. I don't like living alone. I think it's for the birds. I hate cooking for one. People said, are you still going to keep involved in the program? I said, where else am I going to go? Where else would I go after it's given me the life? I go to two Al-Anon meetings a week and I try to make one open AA meeting every week. Sometimes I miss it. I'm sponsoring people today and I'm being sponsored. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. Our two sons don't drink. How come I'm the lucky one? I don't know. Our older son's an attorney and he, uh, six years ago, decided to throw in the towel up in Washington, in Washington, D.C. and moved to Montana. He is the attorney for the University of Montana and lives in Missoula, Montana. He gave us the daughter I always wanted. I couldn't love her anymore if I'd had her myself. They gave us our only two grandchildren, two granddaughters, and they're fantastic. David loved them. He called them his grandgirls, not his granddaughters, his grandgirls. And they are just something to be so proud of. They're 10 and 17, and uh, they are so fine. Our younger son, after seven years of marriage, was divorced, and I was devastated. I loved his little wife. She was a foreigner, and uh, her family lives in Australia, and she didn't want to move to the States. And he had been in Asia for 12 years, and he was ready to come back. And they kept the airwaves warm back and forth, and finally decided to split the blanket. And Donnie's alone. He lives in Chicago, Illinois. He's very, very successful in his chosen career. One of the best guys in the world. I don't ever say I'd like to have something because it's there. And uh, the kids were all there for Christmas, and they planned a trip for Mother. Now, Mother had nothing to do with this trip, but it was all their idea that we all go down to the south coast of Texas. And, of course, we had horrible weather in Dallas. It followed us all the way to Corpus Christi. It followed us all the way back to Dallas. And they decided it wasn't such a good idea after all. But the six of us in one of these great big Lincoln Navigators, room for all of us, and we had a ball. We had a ball, bad weather and all. And just to be together. And without this program, it wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen. They were good friends with their dad before dad died. And all the bad stuff had been removed. And they'd go to their dad for all kinds of advice, if you will. Life has been good. As I said, David and I had 55 years of marriage. We had 31 years of continuous sobriety. What more can you ask for? The only way that I can ever give back any minute part of what's given to me is to be available, to be available, and keep on keeping on. 
I love the ABCs in the fifth chapter, but I like my own ABCs, and that is we accept, we begin and we continue. We accept the fact that we're so uh, we're powerless over alcohol, and our lives are unmanageable. And when this happens, we begin to believe. We begin to believe in something greater than ourselves. And when that happens, what happens? We wake up one morning and we realize we belong to a fellowship that's indescribably wonderful. Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. Thank you for that privilege. I love all of you and have a wonderful weekend.